0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's good to be here. So, it's said in the sutras that there are three ways to learn we learn by hearing the Dharma, we learn by contemplating on the Dharma. So we hear and we read, we take in intellectually, read the sutras, hear Dharma talks, and then we contemplate, how, does this, how is this landing on me? Does this feel right to me? Is this something that I can take into myself that will be an aid in my liberation? And the third way is meditation. So we don't necessarily reflect in meditation. But what we've taken into our bodies and our hearts through contemplation and listening and reading, somehow it just emerges in meditation by inference or induction. So what I want to talk about today is, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but it's very central. It's the three characteristics of non-self, no-self, anatta, uh, changefulness, as Ajahn Chah would say, or impermanence—everything is changing—and dukkha—the the, uh, truth that not just that everything is painful or suffering, but that we need that we suffer, we endure, we allow the changing of conditions, and no, no single condition is. Um, satisfying to us so we know the these truths we've heard mo- many of us have heard these truths no self impermanence dukkha and i think we give a nodding assent to them but do we really take them in i know i don't i still think i'm a me i'm a david cohen i'm the I'm the um, star in all of my productions. (laughs) So I'm studying this with you, these truths. It's said in the sutras that some people have become enlightened when they give a Dharma talk. So that's what I'm hoping for today. (laughs) So to give you some sense of the importance of uh, these characteristics, I think many of you know the importance of the four noble truths. Central teaching in all Buddhist cultures, all th- in every geography, all through time. When the Buddha was enlightened, he thought about what he was going to say about this. He, he didn't want to talk about it originally, but he was encouraged to do so. And he, so he thought about how he could put what he had experienced into words so that people could grasp them. And he thought about how to say this for 13 weeks. He sat for six more weeks, and then he got up and he walked for seven weeks. So that's 13 weeks just to give you a sense of how important these words are. And then when he reached Bogaya, and he uh, gave his first discourse to his five spiritual friends who he'd been practicing with, the first discourse he gave was the discourse on the Four Noble Truths, the discourse on the Middle Way. And he gave this twice. And um, on the second uh, uh, discourse, second time he gave this, all five of them um, became stream-enterers. That's the first step toward awakening, stream-entry. And then he gave the discourse on non-self. And after he gave the discourse on on non-self, they were all completely awakened, totally awakened. They all became arhats. So you get to hear a little bit of this today. What strikes me about sutras, and this one in particular, is it's just so down to earth. The Buddha is such a great logician. He proves things. He makes arguments. And the proofs are so complete and thorough. It's like they're almost, they're like indisputable. So we hear this and we are forced to contemplate, to take them in. So this is his argument for non-self. Not easy to understand on the first hearing. Bhikkhu's form, the body is form, is not self. Were form self, then this form would not lead to affliction, and one could have it of form, Let my form be thus. Let my form be not thus. So this means if this body is me, then it wouldn't cause me so much trouble. Um, I I would have some say over getting sick, getting old, dying this body causes us so much trouble when I was in Burma I saw these women at a river with these huge uh, clay pots on their heads carrying waters Uh, so um, I I read somewhere that three million People in underdeveloped countries have to travel three miles a day to carry water, carrying water in those pots. Not easy. This body requires water. It has to have water. This body has to go to the bathroom. We're traveling along on some trip. It's all very nice, and somebody in the car has to go to the bathroom. Got to stop, pull over. Go into a gas station. Go into a restaurant. Go to the bathroom. Body has to go to the bathroom. The body has to drink. We just pop. The body pops into this world. It's a baby, and then it's uh, you know a toddler and a young person, and it grows out of our control. Becomes middle aged, becomes old. Along the way, it gets headaches, stomach aches, it gets the flu, falls down and breaks something or bruises something. We do all kinds of things to prevent the body from getting old. We exercise. I'm a chaplain in, this, in a hospital now and I was in a room a couple of days ago and this woman just couldn't understand how this happened to her. You know, she says, I, I work out all the time. Her husband does too. He plays tennis, he plays golf and he works out and he got cancer at a relatively young age. The body is out of control. And eventually, the body gets really sick, really sick, for most people. And it shuts down, it dies. And people put some nice clothes on it, they put it in a box, (laughs) shove it into a fire, or bury it. That's the end of that body. So this is Buddha's proof. Don't take it from me. This is the Buddha saying it. Is the body you? Can you, can you given this proof, and maybe this proof doesn't really land completely on you now and wipe out any identification you have of the body, but consider this. Consider it now. Consider it later. Is this, can this body possibly be me? It's so much trouble. It leads to so much affliction. I can't govern it. I have no governance over this body. And since form is not self, he's convinced. So it leads to affliction and none can have it of form. Let my form be thus, let my form be not thus. And then he goes on uh, with the same proof for feelings. We get angry, we get afraid, we get panicky. We just don't have any control or we don't have any. Yeah, I'll say it. We don't have control over our feelings we don't have control over our thoughts we don't have control over anything that is of this life so how can we call our feelings me how can we call our um, thoughts me thoughts that are just insanely flittering around from moment to moment responding to conditions and causes that are present or imaginary. So then, um, does this convince us? You know, I look in the mirror every day, there's David. And this is, I think, our experience with this teaching. We just don't believe it. We don't take it in we continue to be the center of our stories we continue to believe that there is a self here what could it be what could your self be ah i know what it is it's my awareness i was aware when i was a baby i was aware when i was a toddler i was aware when i was a teenager i was conscious when i was middle aged i'm conscious now and I'll be conscious on my deathbed and I might be even conscious after I die. That's who I am. By the way, I want to just back up one second um, just to mention. So when I went through uh, this, um, these images about old age and sickness and death, This is a very good contemplation. Um, The Buddha called the contemplation on death the king of contemplations. It can relieve us of fear to really contemplate. I think we know about metta as a contemplation that many of us do. Well, contemplation on death The Buddha called it the king of all contemplations. He said it's like the elephant's paw in a jungle. All other paws can fit into the elephant's paw. It's such a powerful, curative contemplation, curative of our addiction to the self, curative to uh, being so distracted with what she said or what they're going to think of me or will I go on this vacation or, will, you know, passions and angers and irritations. and It just puts all of that into such perspective. So if you're interested in pursuing this great contemplation, just look it up on Google, Buddhist Contemplation on Death, and it'll, it'll go through it for you Shariputra asked the Buddha said, told the Buddha I, I contemplate every day on death is that enough and the Buddha said no Shariputra you should contemplate on death with every outbreath and with every in breath the contemplation on death is a great medicine for so many ills. And it's such a great encouragement. So getting back to um, awareness is self. Consciousness is self. Does that make sense? Kind of makes sense. Well, I'd like to do an experiment with you if you will indulge me. So, please, if you would be so kind to do so put your hand in front of your face and look at your hand and the hand is the object notice the hands color notice the hands form So the hand is the object and we're sensing the hand. And now this is the tricky part, but if you can turn your attention to the knower of the hand, it's distinct from the hand. What knows the hand is different from the hand. These are two different things there's awareness and there's the hand there's the one who knows if you can get some sense of the one who knows and the hand the object and these two are inextricably linked okay you can put your hand down thank you So you can't know awareness in itself. The only way you can know awareness, it doesn't exist on its own, just like the hand doesn't exist without awareness. Awareness does not exist without the hand. These two are inextricably linked Awareness and the object of awareness. So right now, whatever you're seeing, hearing my voice, whatever you're touching, feeling your body, and there's knowing of that. That's what consciousness is. So there's In meditation, there is the body and the breath and awareness of the body and the breath. And now I'm looking at you and there's space and air and light and your faces and all this. And my awareness. And this pairing of awareness and object this inextricably linked paired progression is our experience of life. This is our total experience of life from moment to moment and it never ends and it's always changing. Consciousness, object, inextricably linked paired progression, constantly changing and there's no room for anything else There's no room for anything else in this moment right now than awareness and the objects of our awareness. There's no room for a self. Consciousness keeps changing along with what it's conscious of. So just like Form and feelings and thoughts, awareness changes right along with them. So we are not our consciousness. We call it a um, we call it a river, right? But what is a river? a river is not a river a river is flowing water so water flows along and it hits rocks and it sprays up in the air and lots of churning then it comes back into the water and it flows along some more then the banks widen and the river becomes the water becomes calm narrows Becomes fast, maybe becomes a rapid. We call it a river, but it's really flowing water. We call ourselves an I, a me, a mine, but we're really flowing sensations. We're flowing sights, sounds, tastes, touches. Smells, thoughts, consciousness flowing from moment to moment, always changing. The Buddha urged his son Rahula. Every aspect of body and mind should be seen with perfect wisdom as it is. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. Shariputra asks the Buddha, how do I cross the floods? How do you cross the floods? The Buddha said, I cross the floods by not straining. I just relax and see. Suzuki Roshi uh, was at Yosemite and he saw these this he was just stunned by this waterfall thirteen hundred feet waterfall and he it 's like he kind of felt sorry for the drops of water that were coming down that fall that were separated by the wind and by the uh, rocks and he you know he said something like uh, they get scared They're, it's a river and then they fall and they become separated and they don't feel like they belong anymore and they get scared they get panicky and they grab onto something they grab onto some fear or some hatred or some passion or something you know to hold onto. And then they reach the bottom and they rejoin the river. they have composure again. I want to read some of this to you about uh, that he wrote. It's so beautiful. Before we were born, we had no feeling after we were separated from, by birth from this oneness, as the water falling from the waterfall is separated by winds and rocks, then we have feeling. You have difficulty because you have feeling. You attach to the feeling you have without knowing just how this kind of feeling is created. When you do not realize that you are one with the river, or one with the universe, you have fear. When we realize this fact, we have no fear of death anymore and we have no actual difficulty in our lives. When the water returns to its original oneness with the river, it no longer has any individual feeling to it. It resumes its own nature and finds composure, how very glad the water must be to come back to the original river. We say everything comes out of emptiness. One whole river, this whole experience that's constantly changing, or one whole mind is emptiness. When we reach this understanding, we find the true meaning of our life. When we understand that we're not self, there is no permanence. There are no conditions that we can rely on. When we understand that we're just I shouldn't say just, that we are, we are emptiness rolling along. We have composure. We can relax into this. We can trust this. We do belong. We don't stick out. Chogyam Trumpa said that What arises, what comes out of this flow, are neuroses. (laughs) So, um, maybe you can understand how the freedom that this kind of understanding can give us, the, the liberation this kind of understanding can give us from our... Attachments, our neuroses, are holding on. Water drops, afraid they don't belong. At the end of the sutra, the Buddha describes the benefits of this Understanding. Bhikkhus, when a noble follower who has heard the truth sees thus, he finds estrangement in form. He finds estrangement in feeling. He finds estrangement in perceptions, in determinations. He finds estrangement in consciousness. Disengages, disengages from attachments. Estrangement, disengagement, letting go. Letting go and letting be. Ajahn Chah famously said, Don't accept praise or gain. When you let go a little, you have a little peace. When you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. When you let go completely, you have complete peace. So just let go a little. In our meditations, you know, we we rejoin our our own flowing river sometimes, and then we. Our neuroses pull us out and then we go back in, letting go a little, a little peace. I think this is why we meditate. We feel it when we sit down. We feel this kind of unity and returning to home. Returning to the comfort of what we call in Zen, big mind. Big mind, seeing what is here. Now, to some of you, this may sound a little dry. Like, um, where's the meaning in this? Where's the happiness in this? Where's the goodness in this? So, um, I want to just tell a little a little story. I, I was at the hospital last week and I met this man. This was in the midst of uh, that was the day that Mattis resigned. The stock market had the biggest crash in history or something like that. Trump had just radically pulled out of Syria and lots of you know very you know, jolting things were going on in the world that's why I love to go to the hospital just go to these rooms where there's life just just life simple life simple life going on so I walked into this room this Vietnamese man simple life sitting in his chair no CNN on the TV and um, I said, so what's going on? And uh, he said, well, I have a tumor on my kidney. And I said, oh, is it cancerous? And he said, I don't know. And um, I said, well, you know, how are you? You know, how are you doing? He said, I'm fine, fine. Wasn't, he was, seemed kind of happy, actually. And then he said, he saw my puzzlement, and he said, You know, sometimes when you're 60, it's the end. Sometimes when you're 100, it's the end. He said, When you're sick like this, food doesn't matter. Money doesn't matter. Travel doesn't matter and I, you know, and and I, I just you know, simply are you, you are you okay? Yes, he was fine. He was I could see he was actually fine. He wasn't like saying nothing matters and and he was depressed about that. He was fine. With, with that. And it's, you know, it, it kind of struck me, it's true. In the simplicity of this room, money doesn't matter. Travel doesn't matter. Food doesn't matter. And then he said, um, you know, the doctor is so skillful He's so smart. He comes into my room and he explains everything to me so carefully. He's so kind. It warms my heart. He's so kind. The nurses are so kind. He said, that's what matters. So, you know, out of this emptiness rolling along, out of this awareness of sense objects that are constantly changing, what emerges? Mysteriously, what emerges, the alchemistry of that experience, is kindness emerges. And kindness is what matters. Kalu Rinpoche said uh, something like, um, this is real, you are real, you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. So that's all I have to say today. Maybe, you know, if a little, just a little of this can just move us just a little bit, give us a little space from this powerful sticking that we have to our habits and formations mental formations we're so stuck to our thoughts so stuck to our identities so may we all become a little estranged From me, myself, and mine. Let go a little. And enjoy the kindness. Uh, We just have a couple of minutes. Are there any comments or questions? Is there a microphone? There's one out there. The sacredness in all this—is it the kindness that comes? Well, that's a wonderful question. You know, I—I I think the sacredness is when we see. The sacredness is in the awareness. It's amazing. It's just amazing to be here and just to really be here and be aware of our sensations the awareness is boundless so there, there can be a wonderful sense of reverence that can emerge from this, from the mind settling and being aware and being here. And the kindness emerges from that. I go into Buddhist rooms at the hospital and I say I'm a Buddhist chaplain. When I go into a Jewish room, I say I'm a Jewish chaplain. And um, and with them, I talk about Kuan Yin, the Buddha of compassion, the Buddha of kindness. That's what they. That's what nourishes them. The Buddha of Avalokiteshvara. She's not in here, but Buddha of you know, ninety-nine arms that reach in all directions with mercy and kindness. So all of this practice is just abundant with blessings, all aspects of practice. Anything else? When you're in a state of mind when you can embrace no self, um, you still have to take care of your body and control it. So when you're in that state, like what changes do you see in how you act or behave or relate to others? Mm. Well, if we um, have some space from thinking of ourself as a self, then we would uh, not be selfish. We would act and speak in a way that is, uh, if we if we don't completely understand no self, we can understand non-selfishness. So we we can be generous. We're all, you know, it's there's this intimacy with all beings. There's this communion we're all the river. We're all part of the river. So, what's mine is yours. Generosity can come from that. Kindness can come from that. Perception. Harmony. Taking care of Buddha in our speech and in our actions. Just taking care of Buddha. Taking care of our our practice. So we don't have to really be too uh, um, ardent about taking care of ourselves, taking care of this self. If we take care of Buddha, Buddha will take care of us. If you take care of Buddha in your speech and in your action and in your work, Your livelihood, do your livelihood well, with kindness for others, respect for others, respect for the work, your life will go along okay. Is that answer okay? Thank you so much.